Hey, this is Jakob Eisenbach and you're listening to the Sound Architect Podcast. And welcome to the Sound Architect podcast. As you just heard, I am joined by composer and sound designer Jacob Eisenbach. Thanks for joining me today, Jacob. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm just perfectly relaxed coming back from one week of hiking in the mountains. And now the Zurich Film Festival is about to start. Lots of appointments. How are you? Nice. Yeah, I'm good. I have not been traveling across any glaciers lately, so I'm very <laughs> jealous. <laughs> yeah, you should be. <laughs> So before we dive into Tikal, Night of the Blood Moon, which I'm very interested to talk about, um, I'd love to hear about your journey into music and sound design. How did that start? Um, so it started actually by playing guitar. When I was 15, I started playing guitar. Nice. Good choice. <laughs> and then I realized I'm somewhat good at it, which may, I mean, I don't, you're not supposed to talk about yourself being good or something like that, but I felt like this is the first time in my life where I'm really good at something, but I realized making a living by just playing guitar isn't an option. So I thought about <laughs> getting, <laughs> into everyone, no. <laughs> yeah. getting into composition is a better choice because then you can also play guitar, but you don't have to be the very best of the world. So. Oh, win-win. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And the story continues as I applied for music university and then I actually got accepted in Zurich five years later as one oh, of, wow. yeah, as one of four people studying at the Zurich University of Arts. And there I learned all my craft of sound design and music composition. And what was the first moment? So obviously you were playing guitar. Was there anything that really kind of turned your head towards composition apart from, I need to do something else apart from try and play guitar? <laughs> um, I think the moment that changed was like uh, what I liked about playing guitar was the energy of the rock music and metal music. And I found the music nice. in the trailer and Hans Zimmer, obviously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, luckily through studying and through learning a lot through the years, I learned so much more classical music. And and I just, op I just found this massive universe of orchestral and beautiful music that's out there. And yeah, I think it's a better choice than just playing guitar and rock music all the time. <laughs> well. I'm really curious how this led to uh, to Carl Night of the Blood Moon. So, how did you how did you first get involved with this project? So, the first time I was involved in this project was through Patient Zero, which is another game they did, the studio VR mm -hmm. Systems, and it's a studio that was hiring a few of the game designers that I met at my university. So they actually just got me along in the new studio. And then I was invited to the first facility of this True VR center, which is an arena, which is up to 300 square meters. And I was invited. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was invited. I went there. I was like, okay, this is like the, that's huge. the typical job appointment where they tell you about the project that's going to be in the next few months. And then no, it was completely different. It was like this big warehouse sized arena and I got my VR goggles and the backpack computer and I was suddenly in this virtual world and I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not your usual meeting. Not your usual meeting. So yeah, that was the first thing. And I realized they have no idea about sound in general. They just had some mono, which was overdriven and clipping all the time. So I could start composing and sound designing everything. Yeah. So you had like a blank canvas to work with basically. Yeah, completely. It was such a blank canvas that I never experience before so usually when you work on a project there's something like that out there for example if you do a game there is some game 
somewhere else in the world where you can have inspiration from. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't the case with that one. I was like, <laughs> I've never seen this. How do you actually do that? The sound comes from all directions when you move through it and this technical level and was like, it was so much. And man, I'm really curious because um, it's for some context to Carl Knight of the Blood Moon is a, is a full body VR arcade experience that basically uses motion capture with re- physical props and 4D effects to put the kind of players into the level, right? Which is an ancient Mayan temple where you and your team are, are supposed to stop the awakening of evil in the shadow of the blood moon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the usual thing. <laughs> the usual Sunday morning. So it's only in North America and Europe, right, at the moment? Yeah, I mean, only it's in North America and Europe. It's uh, in, I think, 10 different countries. It's pretty cool. Right, okay. And it still sounds like crazy <laughs> to work on like how do you even begin to start writing music or do sound design for a project like this yeah that's the thing i had no idea and we, then we just started from brainstorming we had a meeting with the whole production team and all the game designers and level designers and so mm-hmm. we, we made like a dramaturgical um canvas like a storyboard and with the storyboard that i designed in 2d i actually started composing the music and then they had the music and made the box layout and the level design. So it was back and forth all the time. Yeah. But most of it was composed in a demo version, yes. And how long is the experience, roughly? So it depends on how good you are. <laughs> <laughs> how much, how well you and your team do. Yeah, so I, I can go through it in like 15 to 20 minutes. Most people have 20 minutes, but there's also people that have like 30 minutes when they don't get some of the riddles. Okay, so it's still fairly kind of shortish. Yeah, it's shortish. On. That's, it's... More like a short movie than like a game. And obviously the the player has a certain amount of freedom because it's in this vast area. Yes. Um, But what could you... I mean, I'm really curious about the physical props. How did you design... Like, do they have their own sound in the game world? Are they kind of, you know, are they gray blocks in the real world, but an item in the VR world? So basically how it works is you have to imagine you have the level design and you just have mm-hmm. mono sources. You don't have stereo. Like there is nothing which is attached to your head unless you wanted to, which is like a normal stereo. Yeah. But in, in the VR world, we just give everything its own sound emitter, like its own sound source. We used resonance audio, which was the most convenient. There wasn't much choice, to be honest, but this one was the most convenient. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. I had to, we had to write our own scripts to make it work. So resonance audio was basically your middleware. Yeah, we had um, no middleware. And resonance audio is not a middleware. It's more like um, a system where you have a listener, which you can attach to every player's head. And then you have sound emitters, which you can attach to all game objects. So you, you just place a game object in the virtual world. And then, and then you attach mm. this script, which is the resonance audio emitter. And then you have the possibility to design in which direction it will reflect the sounds, what's front, what's back, what is the, uh, the properties, the properties of the sound source. Oh, okay. What kind of properties could you adjust? Is it like um, attenuation and fall off? Yeah, or? fall off attenuation then you can also adjust if it's cardioid or omni or in a eight or eight pattern oh nice yeah so from which direction you can hear it and what like the the way it 
sounds to you and the way you hear it. So there's some sound sources where, which you can walk past and only if you look at them, you will hear them. And if you look away, it's going to be quieter, which is extremely important for height. Like if you want to hear something from, yeah. from above or from below. And most of the stuff from the front and from the back is going to be binaural. Yeah. Which is, we don't use ambisonics. We use just all these simple single audio sources on everything. And if we wanted to have like an environment sound, which is coming from all the directions, I actually had to <laughs> attach it to a tree. Like if you hear a tree, the tree had like two sound sources, which has different characteristics of leaf rustling. Right. Okay. So if you go closer to it, you will hear more of it. It's not like a stereo file. It's all stereo or quad files split into mono sources. And then I had timelines where I could place them that they're in sync. And each mono channel of these timelines could be attached to a sound source in this resonance audio script. Does it make sense? Yeah, I get you. So did you have four of them for each tree? Or? For example, like if you want to have a quad, like if you want to have like in a cinema, two in the front, two in the yeah. back in a room, you just put, put the left, right and left rear, right rear channel on four different tracks and you would place the game objects would and then you would um, turn them around so that you can hear them the way you want them to right yeah so they would face the way that the speakers would for yeah. example so you would yeah. place yeah. virtual speakers all the time yeah so it's, it's very similar to ambisonics but not quite ambisonics yeah. it's like it's still object-based and sort of like how i guess how atmos mixing must be as well yeah kind of but you also are moving yourself through the sound sources that's the difference to atmos yeah which makes it very different it's an interactive it's very interactive version, basically and it, yeah, but it has a lot of it had had a lot of um, problems in terms of performance because I ended up placing five hundred up to one thousand sound sources per level, and usually you have two or four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wanted to make sure it was detailed, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in in another game, my favorite moment was on a, on an audio, audio level. My favorite moment was in the game called Diamond Skull, mm. and then the begin in the beginning you could light up your torch, which is, which is a physical prop, which was the yeah. question of yours. So you have the physical prop and you would attach sound sources on that. For example, if you have the torch on the top, you have something which will give you some rustling and then stereo sources, which are next to the real prop in the virtual world. Yeah. So they're not attached on the prop, but around it. So you don't have a pointed sound source, but more like a vague area with the, right, where the sound yeah. comes from. So it. you can't notice too easily that it's not exactly where the object is, I guess. Yeah, and it's two sound sources which are pointed towards the player. Yeah. And that gives you the sense of stereo in VR. So you have like two virtual speakers in front of you all the time which are attached to the torch, but you don't, right, okay, but you yeah. don't see them. Nice. Yeah, so that's one way and to do it. No, I was just going to ask, um, how did you test the physical objects? Did you have to go out into the warehouse every time and yes. assess them? Or is so, there any other way? No, there's no other way. There's like this one <laughs> way where you can, <laughs> yeah, that's true. You can press play in, the, in, in Unity. We used Unity and then you could press play. But that's the problem. You have a fixed camera, which doesn't turn the hat. So you yeah, have that's to, what I was thinking. You yeah. have to go inside, but that's the thing on the research and development center. I worked there when I did the sound design, I worked on location and you could just test it, go into the arena and play. And then you would make notes and go out of it and going to adjust it. And then you, you get better at it. So it was very analog way of working. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I can imagine. It's it's a very unique way of working as well. Like obviously, I mean, I work in game development and so we test the the games obviously after we've put sounds in. But when you do a VR experience and then also do a VR experience like this with actually physical props, mm-hmm. <laughs> it must be a very different world. Yeah, very different world. But it was a lot of fun. Like the one example I wanted to bring was in the Diamond Skull. There was a scenario when you put up the torch, it will hit a lightning on the torch. It starts burning and then the rain starts. And this was very interesting because up until that point, I never realized that rain is not a sphere of sound, but it's a lot of very, very tiny individual sound sources all around you. Yeah. It's actually just the rain making everything you can have in the, in your environment starts making a noise. And that's why it sounds like rain. But if you want to do that in VR, <laughs> you really have to look, okay, I have like big leaves here. I have like this kind of tree there. There's some stone, there's some puddles. And you had to find the sound for all of that to make it realistic. So you couldn't... Yeah, of course. Yeah. And did, you, did you have sound sources there that were just activated when it rained or... Yes. So these were linked timelines, which had loops, loops in it. Yeah. And they were triggered by events, depending on what the player is doing. Like nice. for the rain, for example, the player moves his hand with the, uh, with the torch. And then if he moves it, the game object from the torch will hit a collider box. And the collider box will start a script, which makes it rain. And then the timeline with sound starts as well as the visual timeline for the rain and stuff like that. And before this, you were, obviously you worked on um, the Diamond Skull with them, a Temple of the Diamond Skull. But um, before that, had you had much experience with VR projects? Because Patient Zero was also one, right? That you worked with these people. Yes, Patient Zero was actually the only one where we had the middleware. After that, right? <laughs> after that, they decided it was too expensive to have like a middleware because you have to pay, I think, five thousand for the license, and the games are only thirty minutes. Yeah, there wasn't good investment from their opinion. And did you miss it, or were you kind of okay dealing without it? <laughs> I was, like, I was used to it after Patient Zero because this is an interactive zombie shooter. No, right, nice. And especially the weapon is transformable, so you can you have the Striker VR weapon, and it has some buttons on it, so you can press it, and then in the virtual world, the weapon transforms into different modes. Yeah. And to sound design stuff like that, you really need a middleware because that's very complex. It's very modular. Yeah, it's very modular and very interactive. So you can morph from any mode into any other mode. There was a lot of transition timelines and loops. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine doing that native and scripting would have been a nightmare. It would have been a nightmare. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't have had to do it, but my developers were like, "Mm, we'd have to do something else, you know, like sound is not a parachute today. (laughs) (laughs) And what about the, the music then? So I'm assuming... With the sound design, you obviously just kind of put everything in and just tested it in the environment, in the VR, but the, the music, was that stereo all the way through or did you want to do something interesting with how you put it in the VR world? So we tried that, but the thing is actually on the, on the level of perception by normal humans that just don't care about technical stuff of sound design, <laughs> which most people are. Which is a lot of people, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they would be overwhelmed. So it was smart to have this level of ambison- or this level of um, binaural audio design with all the sound yeah. design stuff where you can move towards and from sound sources that this is reflecting the real world. And then for the emotional level, you would only use stereo music. So you can have the um, split of those two systems of audio. So this one is just for your emotions and you don't really hear it from somewhere. But on the other side, you have the real world where you have uh, all this binaural stuff. Yeah, I was going to ask, because would it be weird 
if you just had music stereo all the way through because everything else is placed in the world, right? But then you have this non-diegetic music potentially following you around mm-hmm. as if you're wearing headphones, which, I mean, you are. Yeah, but yeah. it just sounds like the music is coming from the headphones, right? Rather than like the world you're in. Yeah, and it would just um, be too mixed up so you wouldn't, you would be confused. But of course, like this is only the ground principle of doing it. And of course, then you can mix it. You can have your stereo music or your ambisonics music and you can have sound design sources, which also have elements that mix with the music as well. Yeah. But we didn't do much of that because most people don't actually got sound design in the first place. Like they just went inside and when they don't realize their sound, it was a good Res- uh, uh, good response for me you know yeah it's the cliche where they only notice if it's done wrong right yeah that's very very big <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was that was funny like i had these 200 th- sound sources 300 sound sources per level sometimes and then i had to explain to the production yeah i need this to make it realistic and then they were like yeah but none of the customers ever told me there's sound <laughs> <laughs> why do you need so much performance they don't even talk about it yeah. Well, then, then I'm doing my job right. right. If they're not mentioning it. Yeah. But it was a funny conversation to make them understand that part because sound is invisible. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, where do you even begin to compose for a soundtrack like this? So, the way I composed for Tikal was like for a movie, for a short movie. Yeah. And we had this, we didn't have a script, but we had the storyboard and we had this feeling like, the, the idea of how the people would feel when they played the game. We had these three keywords, which were huge in, in terms of dimension, because we have up and down dimensions, which you never have in any other game like that. Yeah. And then we had the dimension, uh, the, the keyword of magic and fantasy. And the other one was that you, as the player, should feel like you're actually solving a big mystery. So you're the hero and stuff like that. Okay, nice. So you had these three keywords to, to work with. Yeah, and then from the visuals and from the inspiration, we had all this Mayan temple stuff. And then I just started researching what kind of instruments the Mayan culture used. And it was mostly percussion and self-made flutes. And then I just started working out what kind of sounds I could use. And in the end, I stumbled across my field recordings from Bali. Yeah. And I thought, hey, why not use gamelan music as starting point? Because it's a strange harmonic to European and Western ears. And I also mixed that with Asian and other instruments. So it's not strictly gamelan, but harmonic wise. So it has, the, it has the strange pentatonics from Bali and also this huge orchestral style music from Hollywood. Yeah, nice. Yeah, gamelan always takes me back as well. Uh, I studied gamelan a little bit in high school oh, music. Oh, wow, so cool. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. We had the full class playing an instrument each. And um, I mean, I don't remember it as much as I would like to now, but but yeah, it was all about um, repeating patterns and things from Mm -hmm. what I remember. Yes, yes. That's 100%. Back to that class. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's 100% in the music. So if you played the gamelan in high school, you remember they don't have a conductor, right? Yeah. So they have this one person that's hitting all the time on this ketung. I don't know if it's called like that, but I I have to admit, I forget all the names of the instruments. (laughs) Yeah, you have the leader. So in Bali, I was invited to a street orchestra and they showed me how it's done. So, and I noticed there's one person hitting the rhythm all the time, like the metric. And everybody else is doing these polar rhythmic shapes and shifts above it. And that was perfect for loop based music, which the game needed. Yeah. And then I just took this idea and you can hear it in the music. If you hear the, if you listen to the music, you always have the sense of a metronome, but it's not a metronome. It's 
this one player hitting the ketung all the time and then you have all the polymetric stuff above it and it was quite an interesting um kind of collection of sounds it makes as well right because there's a lot of gongs and kind of bells and um, lots of metallic instruments from what i remember Okay, that's funny because I actually tried to avoid metallic instruments. <laughs> oh man, maybe my memory is deceiving me and I completely made it up. But um, I was trying to remember it. I remember it being quite, um, well, there was a lot of resonance, shall we but say. But that's good. That's a, that's a good thing because I actually missed the metallic instruments because I thought the Mayan people, they didn't have metal yet. They mostly... Well, they probably they, didn't in they in had They terms. had gold. I have no but, idea. But not in showing my lack of knowledge now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's okay. I mean, I also didn't study my my own culture just for this game. I mean, I did something. I, I did something funny for this game, which is the language the choir is speaking. So it's a oh, real, yeah, it's a real choir, and you have to give a real choir something to sing, and you and they don't like to just sing like oh, ooh, ah, e. They I, I bet they hate that to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they just get bored, and also it's it's like a if you don't give them something to sing, it's a missed opportunity. So yeah, there's always like a secret language or some words you can sneak in. Yeah, so I was thinking, okay, what do they actually sing? And I don't know what kind of language the Mayan people uh, spoke. So I literally went to Google Translate. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> Did you Google Translate it into Mayan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's literally what I was doing. So I was, <laughs> I was translating some random, not random, but like actually some prophecy stuff like the fire demon is going to awake when the black moons i have a, I have a text for it. nobody knows it but i have the literal translation in english and i translated it into yucatan maya with google translate <laughs> amazing and then i just deleted all the vowels that didn't sound good so that's what they're saying well if you have it handy and you want to share we could always put it in the episode notes i could do that it's going to be like a easter egg yeah it'd be cool yeah and so, like you said, you used a choir. You also used a full symphony orchestra, right? Yes, we had 110 musicians. That's amazing for a project like this. Yeah, it was perfect. That, that was one one major advantage of these VR games. They're so expensive with all the technical stuff in the arenas that they were like, yeah, we pay like 20K for that. That's not a big deal for us. I was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> then we're having an orchestra. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, mean like, I was like, when you, if you want to go big and you want to have this goosebump moment, which they told me they want to have the people feeling goosebumps in VR. They don't want yeah. to use always audio drama and stuff like that. I was like, okay, then I can do it. I know the people to pull this off. Let's do real orchestra. And then they were like, yeah, at the beginning of the project, they were like, yeah, let's do it. And then one year later, it was like, we're going to record it, right? They were like, yeah. Yes, we're going to record it. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. And then we had 89 people in the orchestra, 10 percussion players and 24 in the choir. And then some soloists combined into 110 musicians. Man, that's a lot of musicians. Mm -hmm. So did you, is that from the beginning you kind of said, I want a full symphony orchestra or did you write it without that being in mind? No, I was talking to them i was telling them you know i studied composition and i if i compose for sample orchestra i'm going to compose for sample orchestra and then i'm going to use what these virtual things can do best and mm. if, if we're going to record a real orchestra i'm not going to have in mind to have a good mock-up but i'm going to do what real people can do when i can talk to them and all these extended techniques and so i was telling that from the very start and i was composing for real orchestra from the very start so i was I think only doing the mock-up in a week or two weeks, especially, mm. especially percussion, 
and all the rest was actually done in Note Performer. I don't know if you know that. No, I don't actually. So it's a notation playback system, which is AI based and it's performing what you notate in Sibelius or Dor Dorico. Oh, cool. I've used Sibelius before. Mm -hmm. So at least I know halfway there. <laughs> yeah, and it's awesome, especially for winds, bras and stuff like that, because you can actually tell them the way they should articulate and that's amazing from where to where what kind of legato stuff stuff which is very hard to pull off with virtual instruments yeah yeah it really is and uh sibelius has come a long way since the last time i was really using it yeah um which was about hmm 15 years ago <laughs> <laughs> that is a long so it's time come ago, a yeah. very long way <laughs> I think that was um, still in the hands of the original development team in 15 years. It ago. was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was like Sibelius 3 or 4 or 5. Even, Before, so. I mean, the Dorico is actually, I think they had some people from the original Sibelius development team in Dorico. I don't know. Oh, right. Yeah, they fired them. Evid fired Dorico. Uh, they fired Sibelius people and then it stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Well, what would you say was the most challenging part of this project then? Um, that was a lot of challenging parts. Actually, the thing of composing the music and pulling off the live session and all of that wasn't the challenge. Yeah. That was actually the least challenging part. <laughs> that was the easy part. Yeah, that was really the easy, easy part. It wasn't easy, but it was the easiest part because the hardest part was actually having this long breath of really sticking to the plan of recording the real orchestra. Yeah. And convincing the production to actually still go there to Budapest and record it and <laughs> try explaining someone the difference between the virtual orchestra and the real orchestra if they don't even understand what virtual orchestra means. Yeah, especially when you have such good stuff uh, with the articulation and everything for the virtual Yes, workout. yes, yes, yes. And that was, I mean, in the end, they completely understand and they're like, yeah, so good that you made us record it. But in the beginning, it wasn't... It's yeah. a similar story that I hear every time when uh, composers are trying to fight for the orchestra. It's always like afterwards, they're like, okay, yeah, we get it. But beforehand, it's like, do we need the full orchestra? Do we need to record the live one? This sounds pretty good. Yeah, and the problem is actually they get used to the mock-up. Yeah. So I really did something. I, I think I never told them, but if they listen to it, they will know now. <laughs> I, actually <did. laughs> I actually did a bad mock-up on purpose. I think that's the secret of a lot of composers, right? They secretly do the mock-up slightly bad so yes, that, but know, that was, the orchestra will sound even better. But that was, a, that was the most challenging part because the bad version of the mock-up was in the beta version for one year. Ooh. And everybody thought that's the final thing. It was like, no, it's not. <laughs> Don't tell everyone. Tell anyone. You just sat there going, mm, can't say anything yet. Yeah. And the thing is, it had some epic brass and percussion in it, so... It had the impact for the game to work, but it wasn't musically on the level which I thought it's going to be when it's recorded. Yeah. So yeah, for one year, that was the most challenging part. I think one or one and a half years in the beta version it was <laughs> the bad mock-up, which I made purposely bad. So the re recording is going to be way better. <laughs> that was the most challenging yeah. part, <laughs> yeah, like hiding was, the bad mock-up. Yeah, like having having the breath <laughs> of still like after one and a half years going there and say, we have to record it now. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And then COVID struck and I was like, holy fuck. Oh yeah, I of wanna, course. I want to have this finished, please. <laughs> so was there a big delay on the recording session? Yes, then? a big delay. I think, I, I think the first version was done in October 20. 19 i think it was 2018 holy shit yeah it's a long time <laughs> <laughs> so 
but, time is weird now. But that's it's for sure. but it's worth it. It's one hundred percent worth it. Oh yeah, definitely. And on the flip side, then, what would you say is your proudest moment on the project? Um, that's hard to say. Let me think. Proudest moment in the pro- I think the when I um, went to the mixing studio, I actually changed the mixing engineer after the first attempt because I really had to use analog gear and. We have this one sound engineer in Switzerland, which is, he has a studio, I think, worth one and a half millions of oh, wow. equipment. This guy's, this, yeah, this, this guy's crazy. Little side note before I get to the point, but thanks to him, um, I actually met Al Schmidt and George Massenberg, if you know them. Uh, I'm not fully aware. So the one is the founder of Capital Records. Oh, wow. And the other one is the inventor of the Paramatic EQ. That's amazing. Yeah. So they were like legends and he invited them for a congress of three days and they came to switzerland <laughs> to make it, <laughs> make the thing with him and he was like yeah well, that was crazy so he that's pretty cool yeah, he's super talented and very 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 good and i could use his studio so he always came in for like one hour every day and tweaked everything and then the rest of bca automation and all humans and stuff i was doing myself oh wow and then in the end i really had this sound quality which it has now which i'm very proud of for Budapest, I mean, it's not Abbey Road, but it's very, very good sounding, I think, for the Budapest Orchestra. Yeah, and it sounds like it was an incredible studio to work with. Yeah, and there's a lot of mixing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. How was the mixing stage? Um, yeah, that was, that was what I was just um, talking about, the mixing stage. They have a Kadek console. This guy this guy is crazy. So he has the Kadek mixing console on which Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody was recorded on. Wow. Yeah, he only has this legendary gear. Also, I think five <laughs> M50 microphones or M49s, which are more expensive than I think everything I spent in the last 10 years combined. Oh, just, <laughs> yeah, this guy has a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's a lot of gear. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he gets a lot of use out of it as well, though. So if, if people are curious about him, his name is Daniel Detwiler, Ideon Klang in Basel. He's a very, very good sound engineer. Yeah, I'll definitely be looking him up. <laughs> I'm curious just to see photos of his gear. Yeah, that's crazy. So yeah, my proudest moment was when I really had this feeling of it's worth it in the game. If you play the game mm. and it's not just good music to listen at home or in the studio, but you actually play the game and it really has this authentic magic feeling to it. It's not a copy of something, but it feels kind of original. Yeah. And it gives you the feeling of this is a magical game here. This is not some random choirs sing something from a sample library, but this is real people and it does something. Yeah, it definitely brings a lot more to the soundtrack when you have real people and real instruments. Yeah, and if you play the game, it really, really makes a difference. I wish I could. Like, I'm going to have to look it up because I'm based in Finland, right? So I have no idea where my we nearest have, one is, but I'm guessing this, it's not in Finland. And we have a Norrköping in Stockholm. Mm, okay. In Sweden, we have, uh, I think, two or three. Oh, wow, two or three in Sweden. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, all the full details are on TrueVR's website, I believe. Mm-hmm. Of course. They're Don't worry, they all are. All there. So I have an interesting question for you. This is uh, usually how I end a lot of my podcasts, especially when guests are on here for the first time. <laughs> um, and the answers vary greatly. And it can either be an easy answer or a difficult answer to give. So if you could give your past self some advice, um, what would it be? 
Wow, that that's a very, very, very good question. <laughs> yeah, and no no investing in Bitcoin or anything. It's to no, do with composition. I, come on. <laughs> if, if, if I was stri- uh, striving for money, I wouldn't be doing this job. <laughs> <laughs> True words have never been said by another audio person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not why we're in this gig. That's not why we're in this. So um, actually, I actually do something. It's kind of personal saying that right now, but I actually do have a not to do list and this one grew a lot over the course of this a project to do list yeah and i mean what a single thing i would tell my old my younger self would be hey come on don't worry that much it's gonna be fine maybe that's like don't think too much about it but in the end if i wouldn't have done it it wouldn't have maybe i wouldn't have had the breath to pull it through yeah but um yeah, I think one one big thing I learned from this is not working alone. One hundred percent that do not work as the only audio guy in a game development team. <laughs> <laughs> Don't work solo on a game dev yes. team. Yes, <laughs> I mean it's good for the credits if everything goes good. So in the beginning was I was getting so much reward and so much um, how do you say like confirmation for my work. Yeah when I did patient zero and all this stuff I was like, Oh my God, it sounds so good. The people, they love how the, the way the weapon sounds and the zombies are awesome. We recorded like our own zombie library for it. Um, oh, nice. But then when the moment is there where something doesn't work and you're the sound designer, like the head of the sound design department, because you're the only person. <laughs> yeah. The audio and director. You're the sound, <laughs> you're the composer as well. Suddenly the whole audio level, it just gets, um, they put it into question. Like, do we need that high quality of sound? Do we need that? Mm. And then you're the only person standing there in front of the whole game development team. Yeah. And everything you learn isn't worth anything anymore because you're the only person. You're still just one person fighting for the, the game audio. Yeah. And you're not fighting for good quality. You're fighting for, do they actually, do you actually need sound design? <laughs> because oh, wow. the, pe- the, pe- <laughs> yeah, the people don't give feedback about it. And then you're like, holy shit. Yeah. I think that was a very hard thing. And I, I believe if I wasn't the only person if there was some other sound designers and some other, I don't know, maybe the credit wouldn't be fully mine, but it would be psychological. We'd have backup. Psychological wise, much smarter to not work. Like really people, if you listen to this point, don't work alone. <laughs> don't. <laughs> <laughs> that is the takeaway. Yeah. Don't work alone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I think that would be the biggest thing. Yeah. Nice. I think that's a good note to, to end <laughs> on. So I'd like to thank you again, Jacob, for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. As we said earlier, the um, details for all the True VR experiences are on their website. Um, thanks again to Jacob Eisenbach. Thanks for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Yes, totally. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun talking to you. And yes, all my details and my social medias are going to be in the description. Just text me if you have any questions, I'm going to respond. Brilliant. And thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice day. Hi everyone, this is Sam. Thanks for listening to the Sound Architect podcast. And I really hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. If so, there are many ways you can show your support for the show, whether it be financially on our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash sounddesignuk, or whether you're just getting in touch on social media. We love to hear from our listeners. 
What's your favorite episode? Who would you like us to speak to? Just let us know. You can pretty much find us anywhere on the internet, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or anywhere else. And until then, catch you on the next episode.